that it was the enslavement of African people that gave rise to what people know as capitalism today. Was no such thing as capitalism before black people were enslaved. The reality is that when we met white people, they were poor. They were chased out of Europe by disease and poverty. They had nothing. 星星之火可以燎原，虽然革命还很遥远，资产阶级不断谣言，惑众群众，搞变火种，点燃后一直抱怨，走进考验的人民不会永远这么好骗。我让你瞧见帝国主义，白人智商主义，资产阶级专政如何设计资本主义。Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host Carl Za. Today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Zhong Xiangyu. Xiangyu, not um Xiangyu. Xiangyu, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Yeah, Zhong Xiangyu, uh, who is a Taiwanese American rapper, a Taiwanese American Marxist rapper. So um, that's very unusual. That's why I'm having him on the show.、Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Zhong.、Uh, hello, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Why don't you、um, introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Because I think you can probably do a better job than I can.、Um, I think you have a very interesting background. I mean, the the fact that you are Taiwanese American and you are a Marxist. I think that just that description turned heads a little bit. So why don't you get into a little bit and talk about yourself? Okay, so、um, I think you did a pretty good job covering the basics. I mean, I understand what you mean by like Taiwanese American, like as in I was born and raised in the U.S. But like、um, Asada Shakur said when she moved to Cuba,、um, what was it?、Uh, soy de los Estados Unidos, pero no soy Yankee. That's how I feel about myself. So、um, yeah, typical, you know, diaspora kid. Spent a lot of time in Taiwan as a as a child. So.、Um, Always, always felt connections with there and Chinese culture in general because I couldn't speak English until I went to、um, preschool. I mean, I kind of spoke English when I went to preschool, but I didn't really speak it on a really like I didn't have a good command of the language until like first or second grade in elementary school. So that's、yeah. fine. You you speak it better than I do, even though I probably spoke it longer than than you have. Well, how, I'm sorry. How old are you? I'm a twenty six. Yeah, yeah, I I spoke English longer than you have, but you, you、yeah. speak it better than I do because I came. Well, you started as a teenager. Yes, I came to this country、um, right after I think、uh, I was thirteen, almost turning fourteen, and I think there's some study out. Somebody told me、uh, there was a study out on accent, and supposedly, you know, thirteen is a cutoff point, right? If you come before thirteen, you. Learning the different new foreign language, you will be able to acquire without accent. So I, I'm just barely past that mark. <laughs> that's why you can still hear a little bit of accent when I talk. But that's、okay. kind of interesting because I've been told I have a Chinese accent, like a slight one. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've been told that by some people. Like I don't really care. It's it、yeah. is what it is. Yeah, me neither. Let's let's talk about yourself. Um, so how did a kid, diaspora kid? Born from parents from Taiwan,、um, discover Marxism. I mean, that's yeah. How does that happen? Well, this is pretty interesting because、um, you say that、um, my parents are from Taiwan, but actually, the truth is only my mom is from Taiwan. My dad.、Um, do, do you know about the Chinese diaspora in Korea? Yes. 
Yeah, my dad's part of that diaspora, and because of the political environment when he was born, the only Chinese government recognized was the um, the Chiang Kai Shek clique in Taipei. And then um, the Park Chung Hee regime didn't recognize um, children of non Koreans as Korean citizens. And because my grandfather was um, from Shandong, uh, my dad just kind of became recognized as a um, like so called ROC national. So he became like a fake Taiwanese in a way. Oh, wow. So you're like third generation diaspora. Um, you're, so you're, you're, was your dad uh, born and grew up in Korea? Yeah, but he went to a diaspora school. Like they had on um, what they called him the um Hua Chao Xue Xiao. So like and then like the whole curriculum was designed by the um the Ministry of Education in Taiwan. So he had the same education, but I mean outside of school, he had he of course picked up Korean and stuff like that. He speaks Korean fluently, but at home he was um required to speak Chinese by my grandfather. So how did he move from Korea to Taiwan or United States? How did that happen? Um, my, he went to, um, Taiwan for university and, um, when he was 21 or 22, my grandfather passed away. So he wasn't in the mood to continue with studies. And around that time, my aunt immigrated to, no, my aunt had already immigrated to the U S my, um, Ergu, so my, um, my, my father's older sister married an American GI and, um, went to the U S and then after my grandfather died, I, at some point, my grandmother also moved to the U.S. And through her, my dad got a green card and he decided to move to America. Oh, is that where he met your, your mom or did they meet in Taiwan? No, they met, in, they, they met in the U.S. They worked at the same restaurant at one point. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. And my mom was like, had gone through a divorce before that so yeah that's how my mom got to the u.s so um, her um ex-husband had some sort of like relations i think he's like one of those um because he was like Ren or like his family my, my mom's ex-husband's family came from the mainland like after the civil war so they had some connections with the kmt and i i don't know what sort of connection but he was able to um get a green card so what about your mom? Is is she also part of the Weisen and the, the immigration wave from mainland after 1949? Or no, my my mom is like sixth generation in Taiwan. Her um, on her on my grand like if I trace the ancestry through her father, um, they originally came from a uh, Zhangzhou and Fujian. Yeah, that's pretty typical. Many of. Uh, like yeah, so-called Taiwanese people came from either Zhangzhou or Quanzhou, the two two cities, two districts in yeah. Taiwan. Yeah, which is pretty interesting because um the the um Minani spoken in Taiwan is pretty much a mix of the two um dialects of Minani, like Quanzhou and Zhangzhou, and that's the same in Xiamen. So then it's like it's pretty easy to understand what they're saying. Like when I went to Xiamen. Oh, so okay, so. Okay, so you you grew up in U.S., but uh, you yes. know, how did you were you sent to Taiwan to live with your grandparents, or you know, what what was the context? Oh no, but um, when I was younger, before I went to school, um, my mom would um, my for the first few years of my life, my mom was kind of full time mom. So then, um, like sometimes we would go to Taiwan for many months at a time. Nice. So that's why I consider like you know Taiwan like a home, 
I have a sense of belonging there just because I spent so much time there as a kid. And I mean, when um when I was in the U.S. as a child, I really couldn't communicate with non-Chinese kids until I started learning English. But I, I mentioned my um father's Korean thing because um I think it's because of that this sort of diverse background in my family. Like I have like a, you know a like Taiwan Fu Lao like mom like a Han Chinese in Taiwan with roots from like. Fujian from like the Qing Dynasty or the Ming Dynasty, Qing Dynasty probably yeah Qing Dynasty. So you have like, so then you hear their story, but then you have like my dad who's like kind of a white Sungren, but also not really because like he grew up in Korea. But then like when he went to Taiwan, he was kind of considered like kind of white Sungren, but also like Korean. But then like he doesn't consider himself Korean. And then you have me growing up in the U.S. So then like at a young age, you're used to hearing like different versions of like the same story or like different things. So you realize that the world is a lot more complicated than like what you hear at school or whatever. And I think this is a common phenomenon among um, diaspora kids or like minority families in the US. And then you just times that by like two because you have like a slightly different background. So then, I mean, even as a kid, I would just hear a lot of things about like, you know, the Chinese Civil War or... um like the Korean War or how Korea was divided because I was playing around with the globe in I think kindergarten and I saw that Korea was divided into two. There was a North Korea and South Korea. So I asked my dad, like, which side are you from and why are there two of them? And then, so then I kind of had an idea that things aren't that simple. But then like when I was older, I started hearing things like um, North Korea threatening the US with nukes or whatever. And then around, it was also an interesting time to grow up because um in the 1990s, I remember as a kid when I went to Taiwan, most of the people there still identified as Chinese. But then that's not really the case anymore with a lot of um the youth. And then I just remember just, um I had, um what was it? One of those satellites that could receive um like Chinese channels. So then I... S- at a young age, I saw like a lot of just politics in Taiwan, like when um, Chen Shui-bian was elected as Taiwan's leader, et cetera, et cetera. So then like in the U.S., you're, you're also, I, I guess it's a little bit different for you since like as a teenager, you come here pretty much like, yeah, I'm Chinese. I'm not going to try to like really be seen as like American-American. Yeah. Am I correct? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But then like if you grow up in the U.S., it's kind of like, I guess a lot of um diaspora kids go through this identity crisis where like, am I American or this or that? But I've been told at a young age that like, okay, you can be as whitewashed as you want, but you're never going to be seen as truly American. And that might seem kind of harsh to some people, but that's their reality. So then um, I made it a point when I was like a teenager to learn how to read Chinese. I could always speak it decently, but I could, um before um I was in high school, I couldn't read it much. So then I, there was part of me that really wanted to connect with my roots. And to connect to your roots, you really need to understand your, you need to understand your history. And you, well, I guess not, I guess nowadays all I had to do was drink boba, according to like the subtle Asian traits type <laughs> diaspora <Drinking> people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, but see, like, I wanted to get beyond like this sort of superficial understanding of my culture. So then a lot of that involved like understanding, especially like recent Chinese history, like 20th century, and then like the history of like Taiwan, and then eventually some stuff about Korea. And then there was this one, and then I went through a phase where I wanted to reconcile being Chinese with like being a, like a good, decent anti-communist. But then the more you, (laughs) 
But then the, the, uh, the uh, blooded American, you know, you gotta love apple pie and uh, uh, baseball, and your mother, your mother too. Yeah, it was just um, I, I don't know, it was just like growing up with this sort of like diverse background and hearing all these different stories. You eventually um draw logical conclusions to things, and then like I really wanted to understand why certain things were certain things in Taiwan, and then like you know, growing up. You always hear like Taiwanese liberals just saying, oh, it's just Chinese oppression, this and that. But then you look into the actual politics, the economics and all that stuff. You realize Taiwan is effectively a client state of the U.S. So then if you want to make more sense of that, you have to understand U.S. imperialism. So then when I was like um, 19, 20, 21, I was reading a lot of stuff about like, anti-imperialism. Like I was reading um, stuff by, I believe... I got to Chomsky eventually. There's a lot of like questioning. And then I realized that like in America, liberals, like so-called liberals or like Democrats and like the conservative liberals, the Republicans, they may differ on issues like abortion or like gay rights and stuff like that. But then when it comes to foreign policy and imperialism, they're pretty much the same. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple reasons for that. One is information, right? Because we can make pretty good judgment about the media coverage when it comes to U.S. domestic issues because everybody, all the Americans living in U.S. are pretty familiar with yeah. the context. It's a lot harder for media to bullshit us because we can immediately call them out. But whereas it comes to foreign policy, let's face it, you know, the general knowledge about the outside world, about the world outside U.S. is yeah. very minimum in in United States. And, and, you know, most people, the joke is, you know, most people can't find a, a, a country a, a, like a, a Canada on a map, you know, world map. I don't think it's a joke. I think it's true. <laughs> it is. But so, which is a sad state of the um, public education in the U.S. And it's this brings another point. Because, like, growing up, like, in a petty bourgeois environment, you know, we go to public schools here. And, like, in the U.S., if you if you come from, like, a, the middle classes or above, your public education is going to be pretty decent. So then you don't realize that, like, how messed up the public education in the U.S. is. And you tend to think that um, the situation in um, impoverished public schools are the exception rather than the rule yeah i mean but then you dig deeper and then you're just like wow like most americans are very ignorant not because they're just like stupid or whatever but because of the situation and like a lot of it just has to a lot of a lot of it just has to do with being poor just not being lucky enough to get a decent education i mean even and also um you know people kind of live in their own bubble right i mean like i i don't know about your situation but i was um uh, after I came to United States, after I was 13, um, I went to uh, inner city Chicago public schools. Um, and I then for high school, my freshman year, I attended Kenwood, which is deep in the hood in the south side of Chicago. I take a bus like for an hour and a half every morning to get to it. And it goes through some really decrepit um, neighborhood on the Chicago South Side. I mean, I have seen <laughs> I, I have seen that part of American life. And and I, yeah. to be honest, like for people who, who grew up in like white suburbs, you know, in a middle class uh, neighborhood, I, I'm not sure if how much they're exposed to to that side of America. And, and yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It's kind of um it's kind of interesting because when before I was 4, I um grew up in this small town called Farmville because that's where my dad um ran a gas station. And Farmville, you know what they did um when integration when schools were forced to integrate, they just decided to shut down their public education altogether for many years because they didn't want the white kids and black kids going to school together. Wow. And then what ended up happening was um the richer kids, you know, mostly most most of them happened to be white, um, had, went to private school. And then the poor people, which covered like the majority of the black people, just didn't have an education for quite a few years. So then I've I've seen like that part of America as a kid and then it's because of that sort of environment my mom wanted to move to um like move to the suburbs of Richmond. So I mean that's where that's where my parents met. I mean that's where my, that's where they lived for a few years before they moved to Farmville. But Is there a lot of uh, Asian American kids uh, where you grew up? No, when I graduated from high school, I was the only person in my graduating class who spoke Chinese fluently. Wow. But um I wanted to bring up a similar story because he talked about going to um, school in the inner city. When I was in middle school, they um, I was sent to a so-called um, gifted program. And what they really did was, um, so my county is pretty big and like the northern part of the county is like pretty, like pretty well off. But then the southern part of the county is pretty impoverished. It's um just in a ba- in in bad conditions, and you know how like in the in America, like how much funding your school gets depends on like the in like the housing, what, what is it, property tax that the students families pay. Yep. So then, and then like you also have things like if a school underperforms, it doesn't get federal funding. I'm not exactly sure how all of it works, but what they did was they ended up th- putting together a gifted program that gets kids from all over the county, mostly from the better off areas. And then they put the gifted program in like one of the poorest middle schools in the whole county. And then they segregated us from the rest of the kids, except for a few classes like um, PE or like orchestra and stuff like that. And then what we did was we artificially brought up their test scores. But then they weren't, I mean, in, um, what is it? In Chinese, like, 指标不指本. Wow. So they basically <laughs> did that just to jack up the average score of the school. Wow. Yep. And so that was my first exposure to like, um, like first, I mean, okay, I talked about like, um, the countryside when I was a kid and like Farmville and stuff like that. But then this was like during my formative years when I saw like how poverty could really fuck with people. Cause you had these kids. And then like, at, of course, at first, like, you know, you have these stereotypes about like certain people. And then when you, if you don't understand the context, you'll kind of see superficially, yes, they're like, you know, more aggressive, you get into fights more. But then like, once you start to actually get to know them and understand them, then you realize, hey, like, that they could have, I could have easily been them if I had been unlucky. Yep. And then so then that was like, kind of my first awakening. And then my introduction to hip hop was around then. I mean, before I, I was introduced to hip hop through video games, like, um, True Crime, Streets of L.A., Grand Theft Auto, San Andreas, because like inside the video game, they had these um, radio stations that played hip hop and I liked it. Now, this is the thing. When I was a very young child, um, I played piano and violin. So then naturally, a lot of the music I listened to was classical music. And then at that around that time, my classmates were listening to things like Simple Plan, Blink-182, um, Yellow Card, like that kind of music. And I've always found that to be lame. But then I was also made fun of for listening to classical music. So then I'm like, okay, I need to find something that's like not 
lame, but I don't want to listen to the stuff they listen to because I find that lame. And... <laughs> you remind me of the Eddie Huang story, you know. Um... A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I like I. Um, you know, people will know Eddie Huang as the guy who wrote uh, Fresh Off the Boat, yeah. which was made into a TV TV series in, in US. Um, but yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry for interruption. Oh, so then um, that was like my sort of brief introduction. But then one day in PE class, um, this um, this black kid just gave me a list of songs. So then I'm like, oh, are these like song suggestions? And he was like, no, nah, these are songs my dad and I want you to download. And then I was like, "How do you? How, I was like, how do you know I know how to do this stuff?" And he's like, "Cause you're Chinese." <laughs> <laughs> so then I, so, so then I did download the songs, and then I listened to them, and I thought oh, they were pretty cool. So then I wanted to listen to more, so I started asking, asking people about like what they liked. And around that time, there was like stuff like Chameleonaire, like Raiden, and that sort of stuff. And then once. I mean, I was already I was on the internet all the time because I mean I grew up in the suburbs, I had nothing better to do. It was either like internet, <laughs> drugs, <laughs> true. But then I wasn't cool enough to do like to do drugs. Yeah, like I wasn't I wasn't in the in crowd for that until like later, and then but then it was never really my thing. So yeah, I started listening to more hip hop, and then it was around that time I wanted to um, improve my Chinese. So then I would just look up a bunch of like what the way i did it was i would listen to a lot of like c-pop and then i would print out lyrics and then i would go and write them and then if i if i saw a character i didn't recognize i would look it up and keep on writing them and then i also tried to chat with my relatives in taiwan more online so i could practice reading and writing Wow. What what time frame was this? Is this like 90s, 2000s? What were we talking about? Uh, early 2000s, like early to mid 2000s. Okay. Because I, I, I'm thinking like I, for the longest time, I did not listen to Chinese music because I thought it was lame. <laughs> like for, for, I think for a period, maybe 10 years since I came to the United States, from the time I was 13 to, you know, maybe after I graduated college. So that would put around like 2000 early 2000 because for the longest time uh you know i thought you know like the, a lot of the c-pop is kind of syrupy it's always the same you know the same topic they'll sing about broken like that kind of stuff yeah yeah and and <laughs> and but lately though i what i i'm amazed to discover lately is i maybe it's a function of you know the chinese society is getting wealthier so people's tastes are branching out more or, or the society can actually support more variety of artists because now lately i mean there's an explosion of different music jar, genres in china and and i was yeah. really surprised by that and there's some really good beats coming out too so that that's why i asked you about the time frame but go ahead sorry yeah yeah so then i felt the same but then um but then i mean those songs are like there's easy topics so then you can really just focus on the language so then i listened to a lot of like zhou jielun and then some taiyin i kind of had a crush on taiyin when i was like 14 but whatever um <laughs> many people did many people did but then like around that time um i also i was curious about like chinese rap okay it was around that time, like I heard about this guy named um, MC Hot Dog, and yeah, you may or may not know him nowadays. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course you know him nowadays. 
but this was in um 2007 or a little bit before it i think it was a commercial because you know like the satellite um tv in america for like the chinese community the all the stuff is the same as in taiwan but then um the commercials are localized so they're like targeted towards like chinese in america so then I saw a commercial for an MC hot dog concert in I think like New York or Los Angeles or somewhere. So then I'm like, okay, I'm gonna look this guy up. So then I knew about this guy. And then one day I was in Chinatown in New York when I was um 14 and I saw a bootleg copy of one of his earlier EPs. So I bought it. And I got into trouble on the car because one of the songs, um one of the um the chorus of one of the songs was literally Tony Magabi, Tony Magabi, fuck Kulong and H O T. So then yeah, my mom wasn't amused. Wait, how did your mom find out? No, because she was driving the car and I wanted to listen to the CD. Because oh. I went to, um, it was her, her friend, me and my friend who went to New York for a few days. And then we bought that CD and we were just laughing our asses off listening to. Um... <laughs> oh, you have to explain to my, you know, non-Chinese speaking audience what that meant. It means um, fuck your mother's cunt. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> now we can continue. It was around that time. And then um, you also get introduced. I also got introduced to other um, people who rapped in Chinese. And then like there was also like, I also got into like conscious rap in the US that talked about, you know, social economic issues. I think uh, I started off with like things like people like Nas, Common, Talib Kweli, Lupe, and stuff like that. But then I wanted to um, see if... Like there were there was Chinese rap like that, but then unfortunately it was like all liberal stuff. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So then there's also like many years later, I've further developed my politics, and I've become like I've become a communist. How did that happen? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Um. Well, it started off. I think earlier we I talked about studying imperialism. Mm-hmm. In college, I studied economics, and I noticed they talked about the invisible hand but never the visible gun hmm so then i'm like okay well this stuff works on paper but in theory but then in reality you send like these soldiers abroad to like overthrow governments that don't cooperate with you and then you make them then you just do like resource extraction and make them make um like cheap watches or whatever so is your your initial interest in imperialism is because you wanted to understand the situation in taiwan yeah 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 and like you know like the rest of china etc yeah because i mean and especially like since my dad was from korea i mean like in korea like he actually had u.s troops stationed there and like it's yes. pretty much apartheid, like from just stories I've heard. And then it's like, okay, well, like you know, some of the liberals in Taiwan talk about like independence or whatever. And then like they talk about how if um you're recognized by the UN as an independent country, then you're an independent country. But then I'm like, no, look at South Korea, like that they don't seem too independent to me. Like, how can you be an independent country when you have foreign troops stationed in your like in your capital and other places? especially in the U.S. media, rarely talk about, you know, but it's so clearly obvious when you look at all the report reportings on North Korea, right? When Especially when Donald Trump started his uh, North Korean peace initiative <laughs> and, and the, the media goes crazy, but it's always about U.S., North Korea, U.S., North Korea. You, you never get here about how South Koreans might actually feel about you know the peace process. It's always posed as a, 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 a issue between United States and North Korea, right? And and 
and then you have these like the what what else did they say about like like the South Koreans? It was just like they just go on the streets and ask people how they feel, <laughs> and then most of them are just like, well, you know, we want peace, we don't want nukes. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's very disingenuous. I mean, like the the, the news yeah. reported here, it's almost like South Korea doesn't matter, right? I mean, like it's like come on, you at least at least pretend South Korea is not a client state, you know, like. But no. What really pisses me off is like when the, the rhetoric saying like, oh, South Koreans want Americans there and like the U.S. is protecting them. I mean, OK, after many decades, I believe that like a lot of South Koreans just want to maintain the status quo if they're like living, if they're doing well for themselves. I mean, there, I there mean, were actually demonstrations, many demonstrations of South Koreans yeah. against a U.S. base. I mean, U.S. base is not popular in in many places of, around the world, but especially in East Asia. I mean, like the, the U.S. bases in, in uh, Okinawa is especially unpopular. Like the majority of Okinawans want the U.S. out of there. But, um, you know, but of course, because the Japan-U.S. Security Alliance, uh, U.S. is there to stay. And the Japanese government, they don't want, they don't want U.S. bases on, on the Japanese mainland, you know, which actually get... <laughs> Japanese people upset about so they stick in Okinawa, which is you know this piece that's acquired by Japan like in in the late nineteenth century and always seem as some somewhat not you know real Japanese so so you know have these Okinawans deal with Americans <laughs> and and the Okinawans don't like it and and these these kind of things are rarely reported in the u s mainstream media. It, Oh no! Like in the U.S. media, they try to make it seem like everyone likes Americans. Like when in Afghanistan, I remember in um, Afghanistan, they would show videos of like people like thanking Americans and children going up and hugging U.S. soldiers and stuff like that. I mean, that's how we have. That's how they sold the narrative that the Iraqi people will yeah. welcome us with flowers, right? <laughs> like in the lead up to Iraq yeah. War. And and the, but but I think I do I do need to point out that you know American soft power american pop culture um is very popular around the world i mean including hip-hop yeah. right i mean it's, it's yeah 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 it's the part of the american soft power i mean people do you know admire us for its wealth for its power for variety of reasons people like american culture and 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 they may even like americans but they don't like American military bases on their soil. I mean, it's very, very clear. But people, uh, the the mainstream media often confuse the two, right? So like, oh, they no, they love America. They're, okay, good. they love American culture, but they don't want American boots on their neck, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, and this brings a good point. You mentioned how like um how the American media can trick people in here in the u.s about other countries but they can't really like bs things about things that are happening in america yep. as effectively right but this is a thing the problem with them um, the media in taiwan is um a lot of their for their um their international news is pretty much just u.s media translated into chinese yeah i think that's and then the thing is they don't live in america so then they can buy into the bs that um, America, American media pushes. So then, like, they'll talk about things like Xinjiang, but then they'll know nothing about like concentration, like ice concentration camps in the U.S. And they'll talk about like Hong Kong and like how the police, like, might have like, you know, some of the just some of the clashes between the police and the rioters. 
but then they don't understand police brutality in the u.s uh, that, that's- like they don't understand how like in the u.s like those people would have been shot like a long time ago that's what really amazes me is you know even people that's so close to the Chinese mainland, right? Like Taiwan or and Hong Kong, that you would think they would know better. Even even those people. Sometimes I I watch television program from Taiwan or Hong Kong, and it just amazes me how much ignorance there is about mainland China. And like it's a, it's a it's a meme now on you know mainland Chinese social media. Um, I think there was a Taiwanese uh, talk show host. This happened recently too. Um, he, he's talking about the, the, the slowing down of Chinese economy. He's using a, a benchmark as the consumption of the tea eggs. You know, he said like, uh, <laughs> it's, oh, it, get, it gets better. He's like, oh, yeah, like the, 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 the Chinese people, they're, they're, they're doing poor and, and, you know, they can't even afford to eat tea eggs. They, they can't even afford to eat tired. <laughs> it's become mean on, on mainland China. It's like, yeah, it's so, it's so bad over here. We can't afford to eat tea eggs. And, and, and they just did it one better recently. There was, um, yeah, another Taiwanese talk show host cited the sales of the Chinese pickles, Zha Cai, right? There was a decline. Apparently, one of the famous uh, Chinese uh, yeah. pickle brand, Fu Ning Zha Cai, first he called it Peiding, which is stupid. <laughs> it's called Fu Ning. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a tongue that's right next to my hometown, Chongqing, right? It's famous for, for its pickles. And he cited this Fu Ning brand of pickles yeah. that have been uh, doing. Uh, the sales have been declining, and he's saying, "Well, you know, because the Chinese, the mainland Chinese people are so poor, they normally use uh, the, their main staple is ramen, and you know, you guess what? They, they consume ramen with uh, with pickles, with zha cai, right? <laughs> right now, they're so poor, they can't even afford zha cai. That's what. No, the the McCarthyism in Taiwan right now is scary. Like, um, in the past few years, like. 2017, when I went back, things were like kind of normal. I mean, you had the typical, like whatever. This year, like this year especially, like every day, then like on the news, especially like um the the news channels that are more more pan green. Like at least there's like at least an hour of nothing but just vilifying like not just China in general, mainland China in general, but also mainland Chinese people. Like they'll just have like they'll just feature like video compilations of like poorly behaved mainland Chinese tourists. And it's just so obvious. It's so glaringly classist because like a lot of this, like the bad behaviors are just associated with, you know, people from like rural areas who don't understand like life in cities and just kind of bring their mannerisms over. It's like, whatever. Yes. Yes. That, that actually is worse to talk about because these poor uh, behaving Chinese tourists videos are, you know, uh, first popularized in Taiwan and Hong Kong and 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 it's it's actually propagating <laughs> throughout throughout much of the world right now and and you know what yeah yeah I, I I get it you know some of the stuff that people do is genuinely shocking you know like people having their their kids pee in the trains and stuff I I don't understand it but again like like you say because China is a rapidly developing economy so there's a lot of people literally millions tens of millions of people who are brought 
from like recently rural background being put in the cities, you know, like they, this is the first time they're experiencing urban life. And, and it's, this is the first time they have enough money to travel abroad to places like Taiwan or, or Hong yeah. Kong. Yes, yes, they, 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 <laughs> some of their behavior is shocking. But it, like you say, it's totally classist. It's totally, totally classist. But, but And you're not going to take videos of like normally behaved tourists, like tourists who like don't take dumps on the side of the street. Yeah. And and then they, they extrapolate that and they just trying to paint all, oh, you know, all these, all the mainland Chinese are these uncouth barbarians, you know, come here to pollute yeah. our environment. I, I, Most of the people in Taiwan who have like, con- who, like, you know, actually know mainlanders and have mainland friends aren't like that extreme about like their, like the anti-mainlander sentiments, like at that most, they'll keep their criticisms to the government, like if they don't agree with certain things. But then you, yeah. you really have like this sort of like populism, which is just like we hate all things mainland, like we hate the people, we hate everything. And then at the in the end of the day, it's pretty much a form of self hatred because they're pretty much it's the whole like oh I'm like Asian, but I'm the good kind of Asian, not the bad kind, but on a whole societal level, like. Yes, yes. It's it's about hierarchy, right? They 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 yeah. see themselves as a higher or like okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we yeah, we may share some Chinese heritage or whatever, but but we got the better form of it, right? We we preserve the traditional culture better. We are more culture, we're more cultivated, you know, look, we're we're more well behaved. We're the better class of Asians. That that that's yeah. that's what it comes down to, but and that really pissed me off, like, even me growing up, because, like, I know these people, like, it doesn't matter, like, once you're in America, and, like, in the eyes of, like, mainstream America, you're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> and that's mean, what they don't realize. And then they, and then they're so sycophantic to, um, like, the West, they, they, um, they beg for, like, the what the the recognition of Westerners and the acknowledgement of them. And that always like from a young age that always bothered me because it's like, I grew up in a diaspora and it's like, when I go to Taiwan, it's like, okay, I'm part of like a, I I belong. But then I see like the whole, like the society at large, just replicating that sort of behavior. And I'm just like, it always, it always messed with me in the, in the wrong way. And then that, that kind of more motivated that, that that was more motivation for me to understand imperialism. Yeah, I I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, I was genuinely shocked when, um, uh, you know, people in, in Taiwan, some people, I must say some people in Taiwan or, or Hong Kong use the word, uh, right. Or in Japanese, the the really derogatory, uh, racial epithet that the Japanese used for, for the Chinese during World War II. Um, I have an uncle like that in Taiwan I'm ashamed of. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, that's what we're talking about it, right? Because now it's so common and genuinely shocking because it's like, okay, that was a term for all Chinese. You know, they're, they're basically trying to show, okay, we're not Chinese. So you know, see, see, we don't even see us our, uh, ourselves as Chinese. So we, we, because we use these derogatory terms for for the main. But then, when Japan colonized Taiwan, like the Han, the Han Chinese in Taiwan were still considered Hanren. You weren't fucking Japanese. Like the, the the Japanese didn't really see you as Japanese. Like okay, they kind of tried to force assimilation in the pat in the like the final few years of colonization. But so then, and then these people, these people, they say that like the KMT rule is colonial rule, but then. They don't use the same. They don't use the same metrics against the Japanese. And I admit, a lot of the problems in Taiwan stem from the fact that the the KMT did a very bad job, um, um, taking over, taking like 
um, taking over and dealing with internal contradictions. So then, like, the people from the mainland that many Taiwanese people saw were, like, the bad ones, like Chiang Kai-shek and his clique. But then, like, there's there's also this sort of, like, um, identity reductionism where you don't see class. Because, like, these people aren't the same as, like, the soldiers who were tricked to Taiwan. Like, working class soldiers, everyday common folk. And then the KMT would use that to their advantage. And they're saying, oh, these, um, like... These Benzer don't like you, so then we're here to protect you. They will play that to their advantage. I read the memoir of one of the early uh, proponents of Taiwanese Which independence. Uh, shit, I don't remember his name from the top of my head. Um, but he, uh, he uh, basically, he, he wrote that um, at the handover in 1945, when J- Japanese surrendered in Taiwan and, and uh, hand over the control to the KMT soldiers, he they he went with his father to uh to witness the handover and and he he wrote down his impression he thought oh, okay like the, everybody was so excited to see you know finally the the, the rule returning to Ch- taiwanese rule um returning to china but once he got there he saw these really poorly dressed uh soldiers wearing like straw sandal sandals and 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 really unkempt uniforms coming over and he was sorely disappointed and he's like wait what 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 is this right like 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 how these people um so poor is coming to take 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 over us i mean that he's he he put that moment as the the moment where he you know his idea of taiwanese independence enter his head enter his mind and and well, see, a lot of it stems from classism once again. Exactly. A lot of it, exactly. Go yeah. Ahead, so then, sorry. um, it was also just dealing with a lot of these um things and working through these, working through um these different stories where I more and more developed a um communist conscious like conscious about really like once you understand like historical materialism and dialectical materialism, it's pretty much the only to me. It's the only ideology and philosophy and like the method that's um logically consistent um do you want to talk about maybe about your latest album because i find it very interesting it has some very uh fiery lyrics uh it's called the uh little sparks can can you talk just a little bit how about how you came up uh, you know what's your inspiration and then how you came about creating that album Oh, my inspiration was I was unhappy with my album from before, so the only way to redeem myself was to make a new album. <laughs> okay, okay, I- yeah, that's 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 the that's the that's the story. And then, um, after I released my previous album, um, a British producer, um, Ransom Notes, hit me up through YouTube, and he asked if I was interested in rapping over his beats. So then I was like, okay. So then I got a few beats, and then um, I kind of sat on them. I didn't really do much with them. But then um, last year, I was going to um, the DPRK. So then I'm like, if I'm going to the DPRK, I should make a music video there because it's not like every day I can go to the DPRK. So then I made that song, um, uh, Rumors and Slanders, um, Yuan Feiyu. Can you talk about your so trip uh, to DPRK? And what, what are your impressions? You know how like in the media, how they, they make um, Korea look all gray yes. and just drab and really depressing? Yes. Now, Pyongyang is really colorful. That? concludes a part one of our interview with a Taiwanese Chinese American Marxist rapper Zhong Xiangyu. 
We will have links to his music on YouTube in the show notes. Meanwhile, please enjoy the title song of his latest album, The Single Spark. That it was the enslavement of African people that gave rise to what people know as capitalism today. Was no such thing as capitalism before black people were enslaved. The reality is that when we met white people, they were poor. They were chased out of Europe by disease and poverty. They had nothing. 星星之火可以燎原，虽然革命还很遥远，资产阶级不断谣言，或众群众搞变火种，点燃后一直抱怨，走进考验的人民不会永远这么好骗。我让你瞧见帝国主义，白人智商主义，资产阶级专政如何设计资本主义？这墓中无人，杀人如草的现代属于让你注意，别现代妒忌年代掩盖的处境，炫耀闪亮锁链的奴隶，只会继续被奴役，唯有放下精神毒品，拿起思想武器，自强不息，才可能独立思考，横扫一切牛鬼。蛇神还搞清到底谁是值得我们流泪的人？敢于斗争，敢于胜利，在揭穿反动分子的谬论，同时为正义发出声音。我支持革命，不指望圣经。预言的在临，因为创造历史的动力不是神明，而是人民。The Portuguese have stolen seven hundred tons of gold from Africa. I know the British went into China in 1800 and fought a war to turn the whole Chinese nation into a nation of junkies. Yeah. 带来的灾害，我们永远不能忘怀。革命无罪，造反有理。当别的饶舌歌手狂吹资产阶级牛逼，我毫不犹豫打破这套路。反正我没有偶像包袱，再加上一切反动派都是纸老虎。Rise to this system that they know as capitalism, that we refer to as white power.